Today's June 18th, 2018. It's Human Factors Cast 94. <laughs> we got VR, exoskeletons, and AI. Got a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, we're back from a <laughs> two-week hiatus, and you know what? It we're we're starting now. I don't I don't even care. We're we're doing it. We're starting it. Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. How's that for an intro, Blake? That was the best intro we've ever done. So clean, so smooth. Yeah. Chrome, everybody. Give me a hand. Yeah, I, uh, I literally put in some bullets there. We did it. I said it. VR, exoskeletons, and AI. Oh, my. That's yeah, what we're talking about. 94, we're here. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today on Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I'm joined by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Oh, it is so good to be back, Nick. I apologize to you and all the listeners for being sick last week. That was a pain in the ass for sure. Well, but it's good to be back on another Monday night doing some podcasting with you. More like a pain in your neck, right? You had strep. Right? That's, yeah. Oh. Actually, yeah, that's probably a better description, especially in this case. But yeah, it's strip throat, not not a fun thing to go through, especially when you miss like a week of work and you got to figure out how to make it up. But we'll get there eventually. We'll get there. We'll get there. Well, you weren't the only one with problems. I tried to get a co-host and then last minute, uh, I had some plumbing problems at my house that prevented uh, either of us from recording the episode. So we just said, uh, you know what? We'll just put it off. Um you know, we are 100% listener supported. It's not our full-time job to do this podcast. So we we put it off for a week because, uh, okay, so here's the story. So I was, uh, I, I came home last Monday night and I hear this, the sound. It sounds like someone's running water from our upstairs apartment or something. I don't, th- I, well, I guess that sound started the Sunday before. Dates aren't important. Anyway, I noticed it before. In the morning, I noticed a little puddle by our bed. And I didn't really think anything. I thought maybe, you know, we spilled something, spilled some water. Um, or, uh, you know, one of the cats got a little, uh, uh, they pissed on the floor or something. You know, I, I just didn't think anything of it. I didn't think anything of it. And um, so we put a towel down. When I got home, the, the noise, like someone had been taking a shower uh, upstairs, had become louder. And I go back in the bedroom, and it's like a soaked puddle. Uh, oh, so no. there was a leak behind our wall. Uh, so our uh, one of our bathrooms is uh, adjacent to the bedroom that we're in, and so it had uh, gone through the wall, seeped through the floor, destroyed our um, our dresser, and uh, we had to basically not sleep in that room for like all week. So we we were sleeping on the couch. Um, it wasn't a fun week, but we're <laughs> we're back. We're here. We're talking human factors. I'm excited. Uh, we, we got some exciting things coming up, Blake, but I want to hear about what's going on with you. I'm sure you had a lot of time, a lot of downtime in the last week to do some stuff. Yeah, honestly, man, I did not do anything but sleep for an entire week. Cause like I hadn't taken antibiotics in a long time. And so a strep throat, you have to take them to get better. But over the weekend, like I, I picked up playing a game that I haven't played in a while and something that I initially just really didn't like. And that's Fortnite. Um, and so you and I talked about it originally, and I think some of the stuff that we talked about kind of holds up still. Like there's, it's the mechanics that are the way it's built for like controllers, like PS4 or Xbox. In my case, it's just not so super simple to you know build things and run through all the different menu structures and all that kind of stuff. But I actually found that through watching a couple streamers play Fortnite and just getting some basic like tips from them, just watching them play that I enjoyed the experience a whole lot more, even though I'm still not stoked on the kind of the clunkiness of the actual, you know, layout of the button structure and how the, how like the building of buildings is a little, little intense to get to, especially in firefights and stuff like that. But I don't know. I really enjoy the cartoon, the cartoony aspect of it. And for, for something that's free to play on Xbox and technically still in like a beta phase, um, it's got amazing like matchmaking times. It's like better than any of the Call of Duty matchmaking times I have to go through. Well, it's because there's such a big player base. Now I gotta say, like I hear that you know if you play on PC, uh, the key bindings makes the controls a lot more tolerable because obviously you know where everything is and you can map things to how you like it. Um, now Fortnite just came out for the Nintendo Switch, and I've talked about the Switch before on the show. I have one now, um, and uh, they're th- talk about sort of this this really um 
shady business practices. I don't even know how to classify this. So initially when I started playing Fortnite, it was on the PlayStation 4. I bought the founders pack or whatever because a bunch of my friends were playing. So I got a bunch of free stuff, uh, skins and whatnot. Um, And because it came to the Switch, I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to pick this thing up again because if I can play it while I'm sitting down watching TV with my partner, then that's that's fine. You know, that's that's something else I can try. Now, there's I don't know if our listeners are familiar with the console the wars that are going on, but there's sort of this philosophy, um, at least, you know, gamers have this philosophy of open up the back end servers to let cross platforms play. Right. Let Xbox oh, yeah. play with PC. Let Xbox play with the switch. Let Xbox play with PlayStation four. And let everything play with each other, right? Let no, uh, um, regardless of the system that you're playing on, mobile, PC, console, doesn't matter. Let them play together, right? Everybody has bought into this except for PlayStation Four. <laughs> so I know, and I could I saw that like all over Google when I was searching about Fortnite being on the Switch, right? Yeah. So of course, me being a PlayStation Four player, I go to log in on Fortnite on the Switch after I've downloaded it and everything. And it says your account, you cannot log in and we can't fix this. Uh, the, the company who makes Fortnite can't fix this. Um, it's a PlayStation holding on to that, that, you know, their stuff basically. And they don't want to play nice with the other platforms. So it's really frustrating to me as someone who wanted to give it a second shot. Um, because I like you, you know, this thing is blown up Fortnite, you know, all the kids are playing it now on their phones. Um, and it just, it seems like it's fun and I just, I want, I want to give it truly another shot, but I can't, uh, because now I'm just mad at PlayStation. I don't want to give them the satisfaction of logging in on their platform. I want to play it on switch, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. So is the issue on switch, like you'd have to make a whole another gamer tag and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it can't, because the PlayStation four is tied to your Epic, Epic account. Epic is the Epic games, which is the company. Because it's tied to that, it's you, you can't log into that because it's tied to your PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 4 won't let that account go. Um, you know, and all, all your skins and your um, fun stuff are attached to that. So it's I don't have much, but the stuff that I do have, I want that to transfer over. But I mean, like if you, you are on Xbox, right? If you went to go to the Switch, you could totally do it, no problem. PlayStation's the only one that's not doing this. So it's it's kind of shape. I don't even know. It's 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 very selfish business tactics because they don't have the gamer, the user, if you will, their best interest in mind. It's all a sort of um it's all a business decision to try to get the most money out of it, you know. At, at least that's, that's how I see it, man. That's that's how I see it. I don't know if you have different opinions on that, but no. See, I, I honestly I didn't really dive into when I was like seeing the headlines about it um, through Google because I don't really care. I don't play PlayStation Four for really anything, even though I have one. Because um, I originally got it to like play more more games with you, and I really just don't play that often. Um, but but anyway, yeah, it's it's. It's kind of a bummer that they won't allow this kind of cross-platform play, and then and then if especially like okay if they don't allow that, but allowing like the sharing of you know account information and stuff like that across platforms at, at the very least would be awesome. Uh, and it's it's kind of seems like a silly thing for PlayStation to do, just because mainly because I mean they get a lot of exclusives of games like before Xbox does and stuff like that, so they've already got like legs up in a lot of ways. So why? <coughs> excuse me, why continue to like, you know, almost kind of like hold down their players or make them be attached to the platform. Maybe it's a good business decision. Maybe it's not because it seemed like there was just so much negativity that came out about it. So who knows? Well, so I think the reason they're trying to hold on to this is because they they are, in a sense, the um, console winner of this generation, right? There's always these console wars going on where, uh, you know, Xbox is pitted against PlayStation. And right now I think PlayStation's winning because they have higher sales. Uh, they're They're... Uh, first party uh, exclusives are widely renowned as the better uh, franchises um, and have have uh, higher critical acclaim. So basically, they're they're getting too big for their britches, and they're they're trying to hold on to everything they got. Um, and 
they apparently came out here with a statement. Let's see here. The statement was, uh, with more than 80 million monthly active users on PlayStation Network, we've built a huge community of gamers that can play together on Fortnite and all other titles. And so they're not really addressing the problem. They're just saying, look, you got more than enough people to play over here. Um, (laughs) Stay here. So Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, as this article, this Polygon article puts it, it's embarrassing. So I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, we offer, we also offer Fortnite crossplay support with PC, Mac, iOS. Oh wait, no, this is, uh, let's see here. Yeah, we have nothing further to add beyond this point. <laughs> this went so stated. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. So spicy uh, PlayStation, very spicy. Yeah, it's a little disappointing. But you, you bringing up Fortnite kind of. Uh, reminded me of that and it's disappointing for sure um but we got we got some stuff to cover here so let me just remind everybody that uh you know coming up here um in july we got ahfe and that's in orlando uh we got hfes coming to philly and that's october 1st through the 5th got hfes australia coming to perth and that's november 26th through 28th we should have coverage of all those events um some more than others but we will definitely have some coverage so be on the lookout for those bonus episodes we always like doing those uh because uh people like hearing those so we in turn like doing them now i want to bring up one other thing before we jump into the news there's a call for nominations for hfe woman and this is a uh so hfe woman sponsors two awards each year i thought this is important to bring up on the show um and those those two awards are hfe woman of the year and hfe woman mentor of the year and these awards are basically presented annually during the hfe woman luncheon um if you want more details on the these awards you can uh, find them at hfwomensgroup.com slash awards now just to go over these really quick i i really feel like this is an important topic us as dudes we get enough representation let's you know uh, they need nominations for these awards and what they are is the hfe woman of the year award recognizes sort of these outstanding contributions made by an individual woman or a team of women if applicable uh, to the human factors and ergonomics community through research academia and or service uh, this award honors women who have demonstrated excellence in their career and elsewhere, who make significant contributions in their community and whose achievements make them leaders in changing the social and business landscape. Um, nominees for this one, the HFE Woman Woman of the Year, uh, can be at any stage of their career. Now, the HFE Woman Mentor of the Year recognizes outstanding contributions made by uh, an individual man or woman. Uh, in the mentorship and professional advancement of women within the human factors and ergonomics community. Um, Nominees for this award should be mid to late career individuals with an extended history of mentoring, sponsoring, and or otherwise advancing women professionals and students in the field of human factors. Uh, So only HFES full members, fellows, and emeritus fellows in good standing may nominate any worthy candidates for these awards, but... um, the candidates themselves need not be members of HFES. So uh, candidates for the award may self-nominate, uh, but you know, ask colleagues to submit nominations on your behalf. I think there's some uh, CVs that need to be sent in, letters of support, all that stuff. Like I said, all the information can be found at that website, which was hfwomensgroup.com slash awards. I just want one more point on this is that the... Um, the nomination packets will be accepted through June 29th, so get on it. You got about what 11 days left. So with that, uh, Blake, we got some news. Let's do it, man. Yeah, this is uh, this is the part of the show all about human factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. Now, this could be anything, you name it, whatever. As long as <laughs> I'm not going to rattle off the list, you know it. I say it every week. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game. Blake, what do we got up first this week? All right. So keeping in true form, while we use virtual reality for gaming and entertainment and it continues to grow, the technology also shows promise for changing the landscape of industries such as medicine, education, and workforce training. The University of Maryland researchers conducted one of the first in-depth analyses on whether people learn better through virtual immersive environments as opposed to more traditional platforms like a two-dimensional desktop or a handheld tablet. Researchers actually found that people 
remember information better if it's presented to them in a virtual environment. The results showed that about an 8.8% improvement overall in recall accuracy using VR headsets for learning environments. And the re- results of the study were recently published in the Journal of Virtual Reality. Now, Nick, this for some reason this doesn't seem that surprising to me, and I'm I'm kind of surprised that this is one of more one of the like first in depth research projects on this because I I feel like just the word of an immersive environment should you know dictate in our minds that it's likely going to help us learn more. But w- what did you think of this article? Yeah, well, before I give my thoughts, I just want to kind of um, extrapolate a little bit more on this. So basically, what they're doing is they're kind of using. Um, spatial areas uh, <laughs> as these metaphors, right? So so if you think about a desktop, that is a, uh, a virtual space in which you are organizing things. And what they were trying to do was sort of create this memory palace concept where people could recall an object or item by placing it in an imaginary location like a building or a town, right? So it's, it's, it's like spatial uh, mnemonic encoding. So it's, it's basically reorganizing things in this virtual space akin to a desktop, uh, which is what a lot of people are familiar with. But but this is taking it a step further and kind of abstracting it to the level of a town or a city. And I, I'm i unsure of you know whether or not that was a major effect of, as to why they were able to do this or if it was the actual virtual, um, you know, the, the, the 3D spatial concept itself, which was contributing to the the stronger memory so i i uh, I don't know i i'm mixed on this but i i think it's promising for more research right um you to to go into a little bit of the the like how they did this i guess they had uh two groups right where where one group sort of looked at information through a vr headset and then on a desktop and then the other group was the other way around um, but they would get these well-known faces like Abe Lincoln, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Marilyn Monroe, and then they would sort of, um, you know, uh, they would show these faces in a memory palace, these, these virtual spaces, uh, like an interior room or of an ornate or ornate palace or, uh, like a, like a medieval town, um, for five minutes. And then the desktop participants used a mouse to change their viewpoint so they were actually navigating using a mouse where while vr users actually used um the immersive aspects of it by by you know moving their heads um looking up and down side to side that kind of thing so they memorized the locations of each of these faces half of them were positioned in different locations within the interior setting um and just to kind of give you like a like a uh, sort of mental image of what this looked like, so Oprah Winfrey would be at the top of a grand staircase uh, in the palace. Uh, Stephen Hawking would be a few steps down, followed by Shrek. Right, all these different. I it, it kind of sounds like Ready Player One to me, where you have all these different intellectual properties and famous people in the same space, in the same same virtual space, um, and then uh, you know the medieval town setting might be like Hillary Clinton's face on the left side of a building with Mickey Mouse and Batman placed at varying heights on nearby structures. So, um, you know, basically they were, they were looking at these environments and then, uh, the, the key sort of aspect of this was for participants to identify each face by its physical, physical location and its relation to the surrounding structures. So all this to kind of, I, remember spatially where things were. And the idea here is that, you know, things were distinct enough, or at least this is what's going on in my mind. Thing, these, all these faces are distinct enough and we're familiar enough with them to sort of recognize where they go. But I'm trying to abstract this to a sort of a practical setting. Like, I don't know, Blake, so I, you weren't in the office last week, but I was playing around with the idea of potentially buying a HoloLens so that way I could have some virtual monitors um, in addition to my desktop, right? And and in this virtual space, I could map like, oh, hey, here's pictures of me and my partner on our trip to the Grand Canyon, and, you know, it's just sitting on my desk, and then it rotates through. But also, I have, you know, my, my music up here and my calendar over here mapped to the wall, and if I knew that these things were distinct enough, the pictures of me and my partner right here, my calendar over here, my music up here, um, 
I think that in my head would kind of help me in that virtual space, although it's mixed reality, right? The, the me help organize and orient myself to my workspace better. And I'm thinking that's what kind of thing they're trying to go for here. And I've been rambling, but I want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I think your concept makes a lot of sense, and I'm totally for you getting a HoloLens just so I can see what it would be like in the office. But anyway, I mean, I think part of what they're finding here, though, is a little bit maybe different than what they what they are like kind of showing it off to be, right? That, lear- that learning in a virtual environment is easier than on a desktop. Because if you read these kind of last two bullets we have here, so I'll just I'll give for the audience, I'll kind of give the whole synopsis. So in the post-study questionnaires, all of the participants said that they were more they were more completely comfortable and adept at using a a desktop to navigate information. Yet they also said that the immersive environment had a lot more potential as a learning platform. Um, The, the questionnaire also found that only like a very few people actually found VR to be uncomfortable, but what kind of what's a little more interesting here is many of the participants said that immersive presence while using VR allowed them to focus better. Whereas when, we're talking about the the desktop version. You're not able to focus as well, so you're seeing this difference at, in recall. And I wonder if that's a, like kind of an artifact of the ease and ability to navigate a virtual world versus by like looking around or navigating through use even using controllers. If that was the case, versus trying to navigate something that's 2D with like a on a desktop with a mouse. And I feel like it, it may be potentially more work, and so you're not focusing as much. You're not as, as free to move around and just look and kind of pay attention to what's going on in the surroundings. You're more focused on trying to also navigate. In addition to that, so that I feel like that has something to do with what you're seeing. Excuse me, what you might be seeing here, but I'm not really sure. I still think that there's some there's definitely some merit to like putting people in a more immersive environment because we we've seen or at least talked about some of this when it in regards to like medicine and uh, specifically kind of like robotic surgery or just surgery in general, having people being able to, you know, practice in a virtual environment and then it carry over into the real situation. Sure. I mean, you, you bring up a great point though of sort of the input methodology, right? Because when you're in a virtual reality headset, that is your only input methodology um, and potentially controllers as well to, to you know move your X and Y. But your your point of view, no matter where you look, where you look, you're immersed in this environment, right? Whereas if you're on a desktop, you look left and right, you're then taken out of that mode. Uh, but if you look left and right in the virtual environment, you are then just getting an alternate perspective on what's already there. And so the focus um, makes total sense to me because you are not there. There's no option to not focus on what's in front of you. You are for all intents and purposes in that environment. And there's no way to sort of tune out like there is on a desktop, right? You could literally just not do anything on a desktop and kind of stare out a window. But in this environment, you can't look anywhere without being in that environment. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, that's a really good point because I was going to bring up, I mean, even even with the blanking of the screen, I mean, wh- you bring up a great point with the desktop environment. You can be looking anywhere in the room, even if you're like you're you think you're paying attention, you might be picking up stimuli out of your periphery or anything like that. Whereas in the virtual environment, you, there's there's no way out of it. You're kind of stuck in there and you have to observe everything that's going on. And even even with like the break in between that blankness, I mean, you're probably still getting some residual effects of what you had seen before because uh, you're still within the headset, whereas on desktop, it kind of depends on the person. Uh, so I think I think seeing this recall makes makes sense. I'm interested to see how they keep like pushing forward and what more comes out of the University of Maryland with regard to the kind of learning in virtual environments. Yeah. And so I, I know I'm getting a little bit off the rails here. Um, I need a, like a sound effect for a derailing train, honestly, <laughs> because I feel like we do it so much on the show. But I'm, I'm thinking about so that that HoloLens concept, right, of this virtual workspace. I'm wondering if that would have the same effect, right? Like in in our office right now, I can look out the window. I can I can unfocus. But if I had a HoloLens on and I look to my left, then it would be an additional workspace, um, you know, with like Excel up or something that I use frequently semi-frequently or brief up or something and it you know it as right now if i look to my left i'm looking out the window and i can get distracted um 
So I, I don't know if that same thing would transfer over to a mixed reality setting because you could still, they're transient, right? You can see through them um, or, or potentially uh, look past them because you're still in the actual physical environment. I, I just am curious. I think that's a good next step for this type of research is see if it transfers over to organizing things in a physical, real environment um, just with augmentations over it. I, I don't know. I I like to speculate about these things. Yeah, and I, I actually think it, your HoloLens idea is very interesting because I'm starting to do more like more prototyping from like a programmatic standpoint. And I find like I, I find that one, if I'm not by myself doing that, I get very distracted easily. Like the internet's bad enough, but like being surrounded by other people or movement outside, that kind of stuff is it's super distracting and I'll get out of the out of the problem space very quickly. Whereas something like HoloLens or even just a VR headset in general would allow you to create the space that you need to keep yourself immersed in in like the work at all times. Like no matter where you look, there's different elements that you've laid out for yourself to be helpful. Right. Or to like keep you just engaged. Uh, so that's that's something else I would wonder if it cha- if kind of environments like this could help change the amount of productivity you can get out of yourself per day. Yeah, and and even going a step further, right, and, and kind of sort of uh, extracting an additional layer on top of this, where let's say you have uh, not, go away from this desktop concept, right, because they're putting faces in spatial locations. Now, what if you put files in spatial locations on a on a HoloLens, right? So so I, I look down under my desk and that's where I keep my most important files and I can like sort through them or, or kind of, you know, scroll through them. But I know my most important files are here, are my working files, right? The ones that I'm working on right now and I can pull them up and, and work on them there. Or if I, you know, like I, me personally, I would keep my calendar up on my wall behind me because if I ever needed to look at my calendar, boom, it's right there. If I ever needed to interact with it, maybe I could bring it over. But but it's almost like, a, hey, look, it's, it's a statusy thing, right? It's on my wall at all times. Um, or like uh, here's here's a uh, or, or kind of like the picture concept I had, right? Like I know this picture is set right here in my in my mixed reality workspace and i know like i don't know i I get really nerdy nerdy about all these things because i'm like this is the future i just want hololens now and it sounds like they're coming out with a second one um soon so who knows i might jump on that there you go that i i mean i'm sure if you jump on it and i look at it and find that there's some utility i might be right behind you (laughs) yeah i (laughs) i'd be curious to see but why don't we get into our next story all right let's go so, the U.S. Army Natick Soldier Research Development and Engineering Center partnered with the 10th Mountain Division in February to identify, evaluate, and transition a long-awaited exoskeleton the developers say can reduce injuries, carry, reduce injuries carrying loads, and help troops move around the battlefield with ease. The Onyx device will go through several phases of testing beginning as early as this fall. While the device is currently focusing on the lower body, which carries most of the load and presents most soldier injury problems, there are technologies that are coming from this research that could eventually work their way up into the upper body support. Now, Nick, you and I have seen a lot of different exoskeleton kind of stories over the past, I feel like the past year, um, and that's definitely going back into 2017. And I know sure. Ergo X is going to feature a, a fair few of different exoskeleton kind of companies or uh, models that are coming out. So it, it's only, I think, natural for us to see this kind of in a military setting. And I'm actually surprised this is one of the first ones that we're talking about. Yeah, it's one of the first ones that is, uh, w- what's the term here? It's one of the first ones that's actually being um, transitioned into, right? Like, <clears throat> I feel like this this vein of research has been going on for a fair amount of time, and I, I honestly think that the the transition piece right now now we're we've we've done enough research now we're ready to transition in, and that's exciting, right? So this is this is broken up into three different phases, um, and to kind of give our listeners a, a little uh, awareness of what these phases are, you have a development effort, right, which is like six months long. It's where the researchers work on these kind of quality of life portions, making the knee and hip focused device fit comfortably and correctly on the body, right? It's very much tailoring the uh, the sort of adjustability and, and comfort to 
the soldier. And then you have a second phase, which will start sometime early 2019 and add in faster and quieter actuators, um, you know, to, to basically improve mobility and sort of reduce the amount of noise these things make. And then you have a third round where, um, you know, the army will actually decide after testing whether or not it'll be fielded uh, officially. And, um, you know, it, uh, officials kind of estimate that the device could be ready for fielding as early as 2021. So it's coming up here. But that's just to kind of give you sort of an overview of the three different phases, right? So you have you have quality of life, you have um, sort of the engineering improvements, if you will, and then you have the decision whether or not it actually goes into uh, fielding. So those are kind of the, the major beats of the life cycle. And um, so, so I guess, you know, we're not quite seeing it fielded yet, but we're still in that research and development phase, it seems like. Yeah, for sure. But it's it's awesome to see like this is detailed so well in this article about the phases that they are going to go through. And I mean, from our like kind of human factor style perspective, it's nice to see that a lot of what's being focused on up front is kind of quality of not just parts, but how it's going to affect the operator wearing it. Because I feel like a lot of this stuff has to be almost tailored to each different person they're going to give it to, or at least very adjustable because different sizes, different heights, different kind of lengths of, of everybody's legs. Like it's common for people to have one like this longer or shorter than the other one uh so it's it's awesome that that's kind of how it's really starting out um and then watching into the second phase to try and make things like more efficient like you talked about making quieter actuators and then the third which is the one that i i'm most interested to kind of hear about or see what the outcomes are although i doubt we'll see a whole lot of this is how it's going to be kind of operationally used or what it's going to look like in an operational test environment uh but an interesting thing looking at the actual video that the article presents um, is that you have it. Not only are you wearing this kind of exoskeleton that's on the lower half of your body, like going pretty much from your ankles up to your hip width, but you also, it seems like, and I don't know if this was for like PR purposes or what, but it looks like you also need to be wearing some sort of helmet as well. Yeah. I think, I, I think the helmet is standard army, right? Is it not? Uh, it doesn't look like it to me. That looks like it's to prevent potentially injury because uh, it, lo- it looks like a lot of there, e- even at the like stage of whatever this prototype's at, it looks pretty jarring in terms of the movements um, that the soldier's going through. Oh, I see. You know, yeah. Yeah. That, that's like a full face that is, as yeah, well. I see what right? you're talking about there. Yeah. For any of our listeners, we do post these articles all over our social media, and you can check to our show notes for these. Uh, <laughs> kind of jumped the gun on that one but um do check them out I, and yeah you're right i i think there is more to this than just the exoskeleton it sounds like they're gonna move forward um you know in the future this is so they're testing the bottom half of this but then there are these veins of research that will potentially um you know work its way into this upper body support as well um and you know i i think when when you actually field this technology it would just be the lower half um, and then there would be a separate sort of research task to go into the upper upper body and how it kind of interacts with the lower half. Um, I do want to mention one thing, though. You brought up Ergo X and, and how it's going to be mainly focused on uh, exoskeletons this year. I just wanted to – that's like a major plug for Ergo X. If exoskeletons interest you, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening at Ergo X this year. You got a uh, keynote about wearable robotic systems, the global landscape, and opportunities. Uh, and that's by, oh, I'm going to mess up this name, and I feel real bad about it, but it's Bruce Floresheim, Um And this is from uh, Where RA Con and GoX Studio. So there's, there's that, and then there's also... Um, exoskeleton user discussion panel there's uh design for population and accommodation and performance um let's see here there's a ergonomic assessment of a spacesuit exoskeleton so there's a lot of really cool interesting stuff going on at ergo x and it's right next to hfes so if you're at all interested in this topic i'd highly recommend going to this and uh checking out some of these things making some solid connections um, and getting some awareness of what's going on in the field. Because Blake and I, we say it all the time, we are not experts in all the stuff that we talk about. We are very much 
providing surface level commentary for some of these human factor stories that are coming out of the news. Um, you know, as practitioners, as, as people who are genuinely interested in the topics, but might not necessarily have all the, um, layers of expertise required to sort of deep dive into some of these. So, um, do check out Ergo X if it's something you're interested in. I think that's enough of a plug. <laughs> get back yeah, to the no, that was a good one. And I think like stories like this are only going to get bigger as we keep going on. Uh, especially like, uh, cause we, we've seen it kind of in the industrial factory worker context where it's also got like, not just kind of the, the leg units, but it's almost like a full body type of suit. So yeah. I feel like that's, it's going to keep kind of proliferating in that direction, which is cool to see in the, in the awesome, like, uh, commercial level setting uh, versus just like kind of the military application of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have any other closing thoughts on this guy before we move on? I don't. The only closing thought I do have is I'm, I'm starting to wonder now after watching that video, cause I watched it a second time. I'm wondering if there's going to be some added, um, added like mixed reality going on in this kind of helmet oh. that you're seeing. Like that's, that's a, this go that looks like it's somewhat coordinated with the exoskeleton like lower half because it it looks like it it, it definitely could have more technology in it that than it does right now so that's kind of a cool another like mixed reality potential application who knows if it really will be yeah now you're talking my language all right well Blake mentioned he saw the video. If you want to see the video too, you can check us out all over social media or join our Slack to links to the original articles. I just want to thank all of our friends at Eureka Alert, the Army Times, and TechCrunch for all of our stories this week. Okay, Blake, so we got one more story. Why don't we jump into it? This one's a doozy. Yeah, this one's pretty serious. So Google has published a set of fuzzy but otherwise admirable AI principles explaining the ways it will and it won't deploy its considerable clout in the AI domain. Google CEO explained that these are not theoretical concepts. They are concrete standards that will actively govern our research and product development and will impact our business decisions. So just at a high level, the principles themselves are as follows with some kind of relative relevant information given along with them, but we'll go over the high-level concepts first. So be socially beneficial. Uh, avoid creating or reinforcing unfair bias. Be built and tested for safety. Be accountable to people. Incorporate privacy design principles. That's a big one, I'm sure. Uphold high standards of scientific excellence and be made available for uses that with, excuse me, be made available for uses that accord with these principles. So this is a pretty pretty heavy hitting set of principles to hold AI to, and I think it's it's probably a good thing for Google to have done this, especially a couple of weeks ago. Nick and I talked a little bit about the the removing of "we shall not do evil with our products" to put it in a very like kind of blatant way. Uh, so and and I know that created a lot of kind of controversy or thoughts around like, okay, well, why are they removing that clause, and what does that have? What kind of implications does that have, especially? as we saw like employees quitting with this project Maven thing going on. But Nick, how do you want to break these down? Do you want to go one by one and kind of talk about the more specific details that we have about the principles? Yeah. Before we move on to one by one, I kind of would just want to address that. I think, you know, we are making some great strides in um, sort of setting these standards. Right. So we saw, I forget what it was. Was it, it was uh, uh, I, I, I feel like we talked about another AI story where all these companies got together or was that, was that cybersecurity? Yeah, no, you're right. It was it was AI in the UK. That's right. That's right. So we saw legislation pass. We also saw a bunch of companies banding together to sort of say, you know, what are we going to do about cybersecurity, which was also a major point of discussion in human factors. And so it's exciting to me to see big companies because a lot of a lot of smaller sort of startups. Uh, kind of look up to these bigger companies as to what are the trends, what are the trendsetters doing uh, in order to protect the users or or make money, essentially. Everything's a business. But also the fact that, um, you know, they're coming out with these only bodes well because they are setting some strong lines in the sand that they presumably will not cross. Um, and they they are making them publicly available Right, kind of like their do no evil clause, except for this is this is about um, AI. So it's kind of like those uh, principles of robotics, but uh, I I don't know. I feel like this is a little bit more constrained. So yeah, let's let's go through them one by one. 
So the first one here, we can alternate. I'll take the first one, you take the second one. So the first one here is be socially beneficial. So this is basically taking account uh, of a broad range of social and economic factors and, factors and proceed where they believe that the overall likely benefits substantially exceed the foreseeable risks and downsides while continuing to respect social, social, cultural, and legal norms in the countries where we operate. So what this says to me is that you, you, there's a, oh, geez, what's the name of the book? It's, it's pretty well known. It's the um, Weapons of Math Destruction. That one goes into how algorithms can be biased by those who program them. And I think this, this very sort of um, flowy, I, I'm going to say flow, it, it doesn't seem like a hard line in the sand to me. It seems like a very floaty thing where they're going to try their best to avoid bias. That's kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah, this one's kind of an interesting take on it, right? Because it's it's getting into how they're going to respect like cultural norms, social norms, what's going on legally in different countries and how that's going to affect AI. And I think I think part of this to me and this is this is my interpretation of it, right? And I think part of it is having to do with how much by implementing specific types of AI or AI in specific, you know, businesses or in uh, parts of the world, is it going to replace a lot of jobs? And what impact is that going to have? What risk does it potentially have to a to the economics of a specific country of any kind? So I feel like that, in some ways, is playing in here. Is and I think it kind of goes back to a little bit of what you and I've talked about in some of the scientific papers that are really focusing at the very end on not like just limiting factors, but let's talk about the negative consequences. I think that's, that's where this is trying to get at, get in at the ground level too, is like, are we doing the proper risk analyses to understand that outcome and impact of this specific application of AI, whatever that may be. I think that's a much more accurate assessment than what I just said, because I just realized number two is avoiding bias. So, But I think this plays into it, right? And and maybe we can talk about avoiding bias. But I think you're right. You know, I think this is sort of taking the cost-benefit analysis um, and seeing what does it cost us, not only financially, but culturally, socially, and legally, um, and and let's avoid cost and, and promote benefit is... is you're, you're right. I think that's absolutely right. So why don't we get into the second one here? Yeah, and I think these are very synergistic. So I think your your bias yeah. point of view really does play into that social just, socially beneficial portion. Just jumping the uh, gun. <laughs> All right, so avoiding and avoiding creating or reinforcing unfair bias. So avoid unjust impacts on people, particularly those related to sensitive Character, sensitive characteristics such as race, ethnicity, gender, nationality, income, sexual orientation, ability, and political or religious beliefs. Now, that is a lot of things that for AI to have to pay attention to. And like you, like you alluded to earlier, Nick, I mean, this really gets at the kind of not just the ground level of the programming, but the information that's being fed into the AI system. And I mean, we we've seen these kind of things go wrong very very quickly, uh, like on Twitter, of course, because people are allowed to say whatever they so kind of uh, choose yeah, i know there's do. rules that twitter enforces and they block people and cut do, people off do they enforce them i don't know oh they certainly do i mean i know there's a lot of people that are blocked and all that kind of stuff but i think i think there's gray area i guess <laughs> yeah i i think this is nothing but great for all the reasons i listed above i think um because like i said that book weapons of math destruction it's great if you guys want to go out and read it um you know we don't we don't make a, a cent off of uh promoting anything on the show uh, i i am legitimately just saying it's a good book and it kind of opens your eyes as to how these algorithms and artificial intelligence can be biased to uh sort of favor certain characteristics such as race ethnicity gender all those things mentioned in this um in this uh tenant here so uh, go check it out i let's let's move on to the next one here which is uh be built and tested for safety. Um, so they basically want to apply strong safety and security practices to avoid unintended results that create risks or harm. Again, we're looking at avoiding cost, avoiding um, you know risk for. This doesn't specify, but I'm I'm guessing it's both avoid risks for the users and risks of harm for the company as well. I think they are they're they're trying their best to kind of um 
test these things before they push them out uh, and to make sure that everything, to the best of their knowledge, will not have unintended consequences. And it's about performing those analyses, I think. Yeah, and I think this this really comes comes in at the the ground level for us right now because we're dealing a lot with different companies trying to test out and and uh, Google's a part of this testing out automated vehicles and the systems that underlie them and having correct learning algorithms and that kind of stuff. So I mean, this one is super important to me from just a user life standpoint. Um, and I, th- I think you make a really good point, Nick, which is something I would not have caught. And it's it, they're probably maybe maybe before the user, they're, they're also trying to make sure they don't hurt themselves as a company, that whatever this AI system they're putting out or working on either doesn't doesn't put all of them out of jobs or doesn't create some kind of utter chaos right. for them that they can't either contain or fix or anything like that. So, I mean, this, uh, that's a really good point you made. Yeah. All right. Move on to the next one. All right. So be accountable to people, of course. So provide opportunities for feedback, relative, relevant explanations, and appeal. Now, that that's an interesting... That's not what I would have expected in terms of the description here. Uh, but I think that's a, that's a really important thing to be building in for AI models and stuff like that. Because especially the feedback and... Uh, kind of understanding and explaining to other people like how this is actually working or why decisions maybe are being made for you um, and like making sure that there is some feedback loop maybe not necessarily you're tied into it but you're able to like query the AI AI and understand what's going on behind the scenes I actually would have thought that it it would have been much more about um, you know kind of the back end of how things are built and how how people interact with it in terms of, you know, making updates and people are more people being more accountable for what's going on within the AI algorithm than the reverse. But I don't know. What do you think about this one? Nick? Yeah, this one's really interesting, especially as a human factors practitioner, because it is getting that feedback loop from the users or, or um, the people who are potentially being impacted by this. And one thing that sticks out to me in this is the appeal part of it, right? What is the perception of an artificial intelligence doing this task, right? Would it be weird if you had some sort of artificial intelligence system, uh, you know, um, investigating criminal cases? Uh, I don't know. How does that, how does that look to the average Joe? Uh, or how does it, you know, what about the automated systems that the artificial intelligence that will make the decisions like the trolley problem that we've talked about on the show numerous times, uh, of taking, um, you know, the life of the driver versus the life of five people standing in the road. What type of perception does that type of um, automated system, artificial intelligence have? Uh, You know, and I I feel like taking that type of thing into account when they're building these, you know, that to me is, is, um, although this isn't a specific line in the sand, I feel like there will be some very, very interesting lines that are drawn by sort of the perception of the people that are impacted by these technologies. Yeah. And I wonder how companies like Google are going to address those, those more serious problems like the trolley, the trolley problem specifically, because I mean, you're, you're basically having to help the AI make a choice and it, then how does that, what ethical impacts does that have? And it's, I don't know, it's kind of like going, going down the iRobot road. Right. But it's a it's a de- it's definitely an interesting design problem to have to tackle, and I mean the the being accountable to humans here re- also plays into the the bias point of view, right? Because you made a great point about if this if AI is being used to help like help in criminal cases or help in making any kind of judgments that have to have to do with the law. I mean, there's got to be some some one background checking mechanisms that allow humans, I guess, to comb through the data and make decisions about whether okay was this the right choice the ai made and also to to ensure that there's no bias just seeping in um based on programming or what whatever it may be yeah uh is it my turn to read it is your turn okay so this next one incorporate privacy design principles so give the opportunity for notice and consent uh, encourage architectures with privacy safeguards and provide appropriate transparency and control over the use of data. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of sort of uh, uh, discussion among the use of data recently with the Cambridge Analytica stuff and and all the the GDP uh, the the 
the reason why you're seeing so many we've updated our privacy policy um so <laughs> there's a lot going on with privacy right now and this to me screams cybersecurity. uh this is not only cybersecurity, but it's also sort of the public perception of how they're using the data that is collected by these um artificial agents and this is going to be so much more important when ai becomes just i don't know becomes like everyday nomenclature right where it's it's we're not even talking about it as much as it being a big deal as it right coming but like actually just being here and being relevant to everything that we do and i mean the the biggest part is the amount of data that's going to pump through systems to be able to make decisions and how and those those pieces of data and how how well they're able to be linked back to specific people and return to bias and all that kind of stuff and i think the biggest thing that pe- that companies can do and it, it'll be interesting I'm not sure that I'll ever really dive too deep into it, but it'd be interesting to to talk to somebody or know someone that's interested in the architecture that underlies kind of systems that are being built and how privacy safeguards can be built into them and how more efficient architectures can be developed and that kind of stuff. Because I feel like that's that's truly what's going to stop or or really hold in our hands like how much data is used against us or how appropriately it's used is really from the ground up having a, a really good architecture behind it. And then the, what what do you let people have access to or have control over? I mean, it's, it's just a lot of things to answer. Yeah, I, I will say, though, this is probably the weakest um, argument that's specifically applied directly to AI. Think about this. Like, if you just take this statement... And, and plop it into something else. This could, I feel like this is a blanket statement that they plug into anything. Listen to this again. Incorporate privacy design principles. Give opportunity for notice and consent. Encourage architectures with privacy safeguards and provide appropriate transparency and control over the use of data. That sounds like a plug and play thing to me that they're like, you know what? We're taking this from something else and we're plugging it into this because it's good. It's a blanket statement that we use for everything. Uh, it doesn't really feel like it's tailored to AI to me. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of these these specific things, especially the architecture part, portion with the privacy safeguards, is going to be proprietary things per company, right? They'll yeah. they'll have their own type of architecture they develop, and I, I I totally agree with you. It's kind of the problem I had with the even the UK statements. I mean, I think these are all good ideas, and they they sound great, but it's it's what does execution look like, and then. Like, what are these bigger blanket phrases within these blanket statements actually mean? Like, what does this really get down to at the end of the day? Right. This next one, though, this one, this one seems like the most specifically tailored to AI to me. And that's which yours. is great because it's it has everything to do with science, too. So upholding high standards of scientific excellence. So work with a range of stakeholders to promote thoughtful leadership in this area, drawing on scientifically rigorous and multi multidisciplinary approaches responsibly share AI knowledge by publishing educational materials, best practices and research that enable more people to develop useful AI applications. Now this one's the best one because I, at the heart of everything, am a scientist and I think that sharing knowledge in a meaningful and you know responsible way when it comes to AI is super important, just like anything else that we have to deal with. And I, I like the idea that they're really, they're really trying to talk about that you should be not just not just like the AI people that do research in AI, but reach out and talk to stakeholders, whether that be other companies, other countries, people in different multidisciplinary fields, that kind of stuff. So I, I think this is probably my favorite principle so far. Yeah, I would agree strongly with that. I, I think, you know, we, we talk about good science and what is good science on the show a lot. And uh, the fact that they are building it into the principles by which they are building artificial intelligence systems is extremely promising to me. Now, whether or not they actually conduct, uh, you know, scientifically sound research and, you know, who, who knows what kind of limitations will be on actually sharing that research. I think it's still good that they're putting this into their, um, into their tenants here, uh, these AI principles. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like show me it's uh what is what actions speak louder than words with this one for me because i i'm just waiting because i don't know like i i just i obviously i'm not criticizing research that comes out of these companies like google uh i just 
I know that there are a lot of proprietary things that companies like to hold close to the chest. And especially if it will benefit society, I would like to see the results of that study. So I guess, you know, like, show me, just show me. That's, that's where I'm at with this. Yeah. And I, I honestly wonder how much like from a, from like just a lay person standpoint, we will see, I think a lot of this is much more targeted at we've done, these this range of ai studies talking to like either countries or different companies how much will you pay us to you know share this information and what do you have to give us in return i feel, i i i don't like to have that cynical view because I, I actually respect google in a lot of ways and they do kind of they do put out reports about research they've done and sometimes it's years after the fact especially if it's like a skunker x works product and stuff like that sure but, yeah but i don't i don't know how much this is going to seep into the general community even like general science community um i think it's much more of a, a business to business uh, type of ordeal but who knows i hope i'm wrong that's fair yeah i hope i'm wrong too i think you know the time will tell that's that's the <laughs> it's tailored to ai but i i just think time will tell with that one so i'm gonna move on to the last one here so one's be made available for users that accord with these principles so limit potentially harmful or abusive applications uh such as scale uniqueness uniqueness uh primary purpose and google's role to be factors in evaluating this in addition to stating what the company will do um you know, it also says what they won't do. Um, like specifically, Google will not pursue or deploy deploy AI in uh, some of the following areas, such as um, you know, uh, technologies that cause or likely to cause overall harm, weapons or other technolo- uh, technologies whose principal purpose is um, to directly facilitate injury to people. Um, you know, technologies that gather use of information or surveillance uh, and purpose who's who uh, the technologies whose purpose can uh, contravenes widely accepted principles of international law and human rights. So that is all good to me. Um, and I think this is incredibly promising. It's good to see some of the bigger companies sort of taking the forefront and and drawing the line in the sand to say, here's what we will and won't do. And uh, here's the principles by which we're sticking to. So I, I like this. I think it's great. And I, I hope, you know, some of the smaller startup companies take, take you know, follow this example and, and implement it into their uh, design as well. Yeah, one thing I wish we were seeing, and I, I don't know, I feel like in a lot of ways this is way too much to ask. I mean, if we, we can't even get PlayStation to talk with, you know, the rest <laughs> right. of the cross-platform stuff. But I would really like to have seen something more holistic from a bunch of different companies that will be working on AI. I mean, from yeah. Google to Facebook and Apple, Amazon. Like, it, I just, I feel like... I feel like having a, a holistic set of principles across these big heavy hitters will have would have a lot of impact, but it also would bring a lot of the probably the best minds that we have to offer in the country related to AI to the table to really start thinking about how from a collaborative perspective they could work together to either lay the groundwork foundational type stuff or at the very least right. come up with these principles we're gonna abide by. Who knows? We saw it with the cybersecurity thing. Maybe maybe we'll see it with this going forward. Very um, true. But that's that's it for the news stories this week. Um, do you? Yeah, we got time for Reddit. You want to do Reddit? Let's do it. It came from. It came from. It came from Reddit. That's right. It, this is it came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit, or you know, where, wherever the community is. It could be Facebook too. I don't. I don't. We, we don't. We don't exclusively do Reddit. It came from the community. How about that? Uh, so any subreddit is fair game, at least for this tonight. I don't know. It relates to human factors and encourages discussion amongst us, the community of human factors, practitioners, UX people, designers, psychologists, everything. All right. So Blake, we got time, uh, probably for one of these, actually, we, we had some really intense discussion today. So we got time for one. Which one do you want to do? Uh, let's go with number two. Number two. Wait, is this the fully remote? Yes, this is fully remote. Okay. Versus be, and I'm going to take a little bit of a different spin on it. I figured you and I could talk about the differences between being an in-house researcher versus being fully remote. Sure, I think that's fair. Um, you know what? I think I think for some of these, we should just answer them on on infinite. What do you, yeah, what do you think? That's yeah, true. I like that idea. All right. So uh, <laughs> and tease them on here. So this one comes from uh, Re Me, uh, and this was posted on the 
what user experience subreddit um, yes indeed <laughs> yeah so this is fully remote in-house ux designers and researchers pros and cons question mark those who work remotely uh 100 of the time particularly for a full full remote company fully remote company could you talk about the pros and cons of working this way i'd specifically like to know more about the type of research that is conducted and how much experience you had when you accepted your first role i'm seriously considering fully remote ux opportunities but quality research thoughtful strategy and collaboration are really important to me note in-house specifically excludes those who work as freelancers consultants or on a project basis all right blake i'm gonna let you take this one yeah, I probably should have read that note because I guess that excludes my experience, but I'm not really sure why, so I'm going to answer it anyway. <laughs> so the, the funny thing to me about remote remote work now, and especially for other kind of companies that I work for, because right now I, I also teach online a, some user experience design classes for a company called Design Lab. And one of the things Love. that I've found about working remotely with them is it's a remotely just dis- distributed company throughout the world, people that teach in uh, the UK and Europe, and then people that teach in these in the States as well. Um, and I feel like I am much more connected to, to my coworkers and to my students all the time than I would be if I was just going to the office like eight hours a day to see them. Because I mean, they're, we're talking like on Slack at all times during the day. We have our own platform that we interact with each other in. And I've, I've also found this through other companies that I've worked with that you end up doing remote work for. You're much more kind of on a 24-7 basis of interacting with people. So I've, I feel like in terms of quality of work, or in this case, the question is like quality of the research and type that's conducted, I think you, you get the same type of feel because you're meeting just as often, maybe even more often, and you're so connected. And also, too, now with with UX research and design, especially but from like a research perspective, you have a lot of tools at your disposal with company that companies will pay for, such as like usertesting.com, which, of course, all these things have pitfalls and downfalls in some ways, but they allow you to kind of outsource a lot of this information and really pay attention to the analysis portion of your research. So I, I, I don't know if you're considering it. I would say that if it's a company you like, uh, go for it. I mean, I don't, I don't know that fully remote or in-house is, is that different. I think it should be based more on what you want to do. Remote does allow you a lot of freedom in some ways, but at the same time, I think one of the downsides is you're almost on the clock all the time because you're, you're, all, you're always going to be connected either through like Slack channels or whatever. So now you're not, you're not having that easy distinction between the work-life balance, which is something I definitely did notice because you go to the office from, you know, nine to five or whatever your hourly, your hourly span is. And then you, you leave and you're kind of done for the day. Whereas if you're working remote, you kind of get to, you know, plan out your day in a different way, but you're also connected much more of the time. So I feel like the work is a lot, in a lot of ways, the same, the tools kind of change, but in terms of what you get done and the, like the quality in my experience, it's been, it's been very similar. Yeah, I don't, you, Nick? I don't really have experience working remotely. I've always been plugged in, at least in some capacity. I will say, though, you're absolutely right in saying that there are plenty of tools now that are widely available that make working remote not that big of an issue, right? We are living in an age where we are able to communicate with people across the globe in seconds. And so, you know, I, I really don't have much to add on to this except for it should be fine. <laughs> so... What do you say, Blake? Are we out of here? I think we're out, man. We're out of here. All right, that's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Did you like them? Did you hate them? I know it was a little light, but we got to dig deep. I liked it. If you guys had any suggestions for stories or topics or news that you want us to cover, you can head on over all over social media. We're, we're there. Join our discussion on the Slack. Uh, like I said, on social media, head on over to the Human Factors Cast, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at H Factors Podcast. Be sure to check out our SoundCloud and leave us a comment over there. Or send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do that at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC. If you like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. Get access to Human Factors Cast Infinite and much more. We're always updating our rewards, so be sure to check that out. Be sure to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Content. Uh, <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. Blake is dying over there. Um, 
And, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstorff for hanging out with us today. Uh, where can our listeners find you if they want to talk about exoskeletons? Oh, gosh. You guys can always find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. Nick, thank you for having me once again. It was a wonderful return to the podcast scene. Yes, it was. I'm glad it's been a it's been a weird two weeks, man. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Until next time, guys, remember, it depends. There, I gotta pee. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>